1: Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by Sage, energizing business builders around the world through the imagination of our people and the power of technology. I'm Ed Kles with my friend and co-host Ron Baker, and on today's show, hopefully, we have our interview with Jeffrey Tucker. Unfortunately, Mr. Tucker has not shown up yet on our line, so we're hoping that he will call in shortly. We've got messages out to him, but Ron, how you doing?
2: I'm great, Ed. How are you?
1: Good. 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 Well, I'll tell you what, how about we do this? I'm gonna just in the in the interest of, of keeping things moving, um, I'm gonna talk a little bit about Jeffrey Tucker's background and with any luck we'll we'll hear from him. And oh, there he is, he's on hold now. Okay, yeah, put him through. Put him through. Hey. Hi, Jeffrey. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for and having me. Sold of Enterprise. Yes, yes. We're happy to have you. Well, we just we just started. I was just about to read your bio, so we're all, we're all good to go. Jeffrey Tucker oh, is you an American.
0: You don't have to read all that nonsense. All that anybody cares yeah. about is what I say now. So <laughs> it's <laughs> up to you. <laughs> good.
1: <laughs> Good point, good point. Let, let, let's, let me just give a quick background on it. He's a writer from the Austrian okay. school, of which our our regular listeners know Ron and I are huge, huge advocates of. He's an advocate of anarcho-capitalism and of Bitcoin, which we'll talk about shortly. Publisher, speaker, uh, currently the editorial director of the American Institute for Economic Research. And and, liber- and this I love this title, by the way, which is one I wanted to talk about, it, the chief liberty officer of Liberty.me. Uh, He's at the Mackinac Center and also a a research affiliate of the Royal Melbourne Institute of Technology University's Blockchain Lab. And the reason I mention that is because we have a pretty good audience in Australia. So hopefully we'll be able to talk about that. And uh, he's quite the amateur actor, but more about that later. Uh, Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise Jeffrey Tucker. Thank you. You, you, you know by the way you,
0: you you've contributed to my knowledge set you know I, I i knew i was just, you know these these guys at rmit in melbourne i i never could find out what what rmit stood for and now i know royal <laughs> melbourne institute of State. i didn't know that and you know what's funny to me about that it's it's actually quite interesting because like why don't they advertise that on the website? I th- I think it must be you know political correctness issues like the royal yeah yeah it must be the royal we don't want to talk about royalty anymore like you know okay that's fine but but I didn't know that so that's <laughs> yeah, yeah. that's really interesting
1: well, yeah. Good, good. I was glad I was able to make a contribution. You know, um, Jeffrey, you probably don't recall it, but, but you and I have met uh, briefly. I had the pleasure of introducing the person who introduced you at the LP Texas Convention in 2016.
0: Oh, yeah. So, yeah, that was an uh, interesting event. I really appreciated that event. It was kind of a it was strangely emotional experience for me that night because, um, you know, my family is from Texas, and they moved there in 1830 and I think about their history all the time, and I think often of my great-great-grandfather and his decision to leave his family in Massachusetts and go down to New Orleans, and he became a farmer, then he, he, he sold all his farming equipment, and, and, well, there wasn't equipment in those days, but um, moved to West Texas and just wanted to kind of live a revenant life, and, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm captivated by that. Like, what drove that decision? And I can't think of any, anything other than the desire to live uh, a free, free life that uh, that, and carve out for yourself your own defining mission in life. I mean, that, that had to been the the reason, and I, I think about that all the time. And and being in Texas for that event um, helped me reconstruct that in my own mind.
1: Yes, yes. Now I, I recall you saying that it was—it was, it was very—it was an emotional speech, and I think it would, people were taken by it. Well, Ron and I had the pleasure I think the night before you may have arrived of, of hosting the 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 debate, uh, the presidential debate that occurred at that uh, event as well. And boy, we've 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 come uh, quite a ways since 2016, I suppose. And I wanted to just fir- first get your take on the madness that has been the Trump presidency in the last even just sure. couple of days. <laughs>
0: Sure, sure, sure. Well, I, I can uh, give you that take, and I, in fact, I was just thinking to today that <clears throat> it, well, we, we've got a lack of philosophical sophistication, you know, at all levels of society right now, and and people do not understand who Trump is, and they're gradually getting the hang of it, um, and 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 they're being reintroduced to something that people really knew. Well, about eighty years ago, uh, when uh, interwar right-wing uh, uh, fascism, collectivism became, <clears throat> you know, a very fashionable, you know, so-called alternative to, to communism, left communism, and socialism, and uh, people understood uh, what it meant. It was about nativism, about autocracy, dictatorship, the idea that the the executive state is the CEO of the country. Um, <clears throat> protectionism was just just sort of part of who they are, and and then with that comes inflationism and and uh, uh, a celebration of the of the police state. But here we are in 2018, and really we have to go back in time slightly to 2015 when he first declared his, his uh, candidacy, and it was very it was pretty interesting because Trump's running around going. Down with the foreigners! They're ripping us off. We've got to keep. Uh, we've got to reconstitute our nation in a way that's more homogeneous and, and consistent with our values. And, and we need to uh, uh, manage this country like a business, and so on and so on. And, and people sat back and they listened to this and they said,
3: "Huh, what a
0: fascinating idea!" As <laughs> if <laughs> nobody <laughs> ever proposed this. Right, right, and I'm I'm sitting there having been steeped in this literature, you know, of of anti liberalism uh, from the early nineteenth century all the way through, and and thinking, hey, you know, I, I just wanted to stand and say, hey, hey, everybody, you hear what he said? Can you believe this? He's like, he's like, a, like a, a revanchist, you know. He's 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 what he's the thing we thought we got rid of, you know. He's and he's bringing it, bringing it all back. I mean, look, you can, you can, you can anticipate everything he's going to do from this, from this one twenty-minute speech. You know, I mean, look, and and everybody else is just staring at me as if I, as if I'm, uh, uh, you know, from Mars or something. You know that, and people would say to me, "Oh no, 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 he's he's way better than Hillary Clinton. Oh, he's a, uh, he's really secretly a libertarian." You know. Uh, he's going to dismantle government and give us back our freedom. You know, it's like, wait, are, are you just hoarding your own philosophical and ideological biases into him? Because actually that's really very much part of this fascistic, um, uh, uh t- selling point of, of, of the central state. He will not give you your freedom. He will not cut your taxes on net. Um, uh, this, this guy is is pure trouble and and I agree with you that that uh, that barack obama 's problem, and I agree that that Hillary Clinton is a problem, but this guy is also a problem and maybe more of a problem because he 's more compelling you know than these people so i 've been saying this for th- for three years and and now every day it 's kind of unrolling as if it 's inevitable this unrelenting protectionism, the mercantilism, the taxes and the forms of terrorists now you know today he 's is going on about why the Fed needs to inflate more and uh, stop keeping money tight, and um, you know we need to build a wall, and so on and so on. I mean, it's all just kind of—it's a little boring to me, uh, only in the sense that like there's nothing surprising about it. It's just a—it's a, just a, 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 a you know kind of a. Uh, a seance of interwar uh, fascistic uh, d- dictators, and that's that's who Trump is. I mean, I'm sorry to put it that way, but I'm sure some of your listeners are like, "Oh no, I love him," and he's being treated he's being treated unfairly by the media. Yes, I mean the anti-Trump propaganda gets tiresome, right? From the New York Times, the Washington Post, CNN, it, it is tiresome. But don't think for a second that somehow he represents. Um, your salvation, or that he has a path forward for civilization, or that your human rights are going to be more guaranteed by this guy than somebody else. He represents his own kind of trouble.
1: Yeah, it was interesting. You know, the the person who has had the most influence on on the way I think about Trump has been Scott Adams, and I don't know if you've had a chance to read his book Win yeah, Bigly. Sure. Uh, and yep. just just that great the the great metaphor that he says is like oh, Trump Donald Trump has weapons grade persuasive ability and and that, that I think just just a great way of thinking about it.
0: Yeah, no, there's no question. He's got immense talent, and this is part of the problem with his critics. They always underestimate him, and. You know, this happened after, what, what was it? You know, oh, recently it was a meeting with Putin. You know, the, the mainstream media went crazy, you know, uh, screaming. And, and it gets tiresome because, because uh, most of us in a similar situation would do something like that. We'd, we'd, we'd say, look, it's better that I get along with Putin than not. You know, it, it makes sense. And, and this whole spying issue, you know, and, and meddling the elections, you know, it's hard to tell if it's, if it's a, a, a kind of a fake or, or, um, or if it's real. And, and we can understand the motive, motives of the center-left and the left, which is basically to discredit his election, which is annoying. So um, I, I think part of it, you know, you, 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 people can become sympathetic, especially the, the American bourgeoisie. You know, uh, uh, people get very sympathetic with, with Trump because he's, he's treated in a way kind of brutally and unfairly and on bad grounds. By the mainstream uh, press, and that that makes you kind of sympathetic to him. But I'm I'm just warning that that uh, just because he's the enemy of your enemy does not make him your friend. That's, that's <laughs> I, I think that's the important thing to remember here.
1: Right. Well, hey, uh, fair enough. And I, look, it, it's very interesting, I, Jeffrey. I have notes here to ask you about questions, and that was not on the list of stuff. And um, but I'm glad we went down that path. We've got about uh, two minutes till our our first break, and then Ron's going to join the conversation and and ask you uh, think a little bit more about your book. But in, in the next two minutes, I want just want to ask you about the the, the latest rise in, in Bitcoin, and is this the start of a new rally? Do you think, or is this just uh, you know another 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 well, bump on the road, so to speak?
0: Um, I'm going to say that I think it's going to be the start of a a new rally. Uh, It's, you know, no one has clairvoyance in the sector. I mean, it's it's kind of chaotic and uh, very much influenced by by news. Bad news uh, drives down the price. The absence of too much bad news tends to lift the price, actually. (laughs) So I think Hmm. that's basically what's going on right now is that we've had, you know, two or three months where in which during which time there's not been anything, no catastrophically terrible news about, about, about the crypto sector. And it's been waiting now for six months to get back on track. And I think that's kind of where we are, that people are looking at it going, well, this is a real technology. It's it's really happening. These are the assets that, that, that instantiate this, this beautiful idea. So, uh, that, that shows some confidence in it and i think that's what's happening right
1: now right and yes you're, st- you're still long-term t- bullish on it and is it just bitcoin or is it is or i should say let me put it this way is it only bitcoin or are you just bullish on the whole no, crypto I am, idea
0: i i i'm fed up with um, maximalists in our sector i, I think i'm all for, for choice in crypto assets choice in currency and i i you know i like i like you know, probably 25 or 30 of these things right now. And I, I think it's really exciting. I mean, we've never lived in a world of choice and currency before. You know, it's like it, it would be as if in the past we only had one toothpaste, you know, printed by the, <laughs> made by the U.S. government, and suddenly there was competition, and we went to the CBS and said, oh, my God, there's 400 toothpastes here. What am I going to do? And that's kind of what it's yeah. like to live uh, in, the, in, in today's uh, crypto sector.
1: Yep. Well, interesting. All right. Well, we're up against our first break. I knew this was going to fly by. want to remind everybody that you can get a hold of Ron or myself by sending an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. The website is thesoulofenterprise.com, where you can look on uh, for show notes from previous shows as well as upcoming shows pre- show previews. So, But right now, a word from our sponsor, Leading Results.
5: We're tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed class To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Welcome
2: back, everybody. We're here with Jeffrey Tucker, who's the Chief Liberty Officer of Liberty.me. And Jeffrey, I wanted to focus on your recent book that came out last year, I believe, which is called Right-Wing Collectivism, The Other Threat to Liberty. I, I read this last year, and I just have to say it was just an absolutely fascinating book. It was just a great history of some of the antecedents of these different movements that you, that you talked about, eugenics and the alt-right and things like that, and um I noticed that uh, the preface was written by Deirdre McCloskey, who was the first guest on this radio show. But you oh write, you just, yeah, yeah, she, we just love her work. She's just amazing. <laughs>
0: um,
2: you wrote in the book that the rise of the so-called alt-right is the most unexpected ideological development of sure. our time. How sure, so? Sure.
0: Well, uh, because well, because nobody alive today has 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 been in the presence of a public movement that was aggressively uh, nationalist with a right-wing uh, feel to it. So it's all new for us. I mean, like, if you'd asked our gran- grandparents, our great-grandparents um, something about this ideology, they would have understood it. But but here we are in, you know, 2015, 16, 17, 18, and hardly anybody alive, you know, has any memory of the 1930s, you know? And that's where this. That's where these guys come from. Now, that, and and also we defeated uh, this ideology. We, the U.S. In, in in World War II. So there was a sense that oh well, you know we're done with fascism. We're done with Nazism. Now we have democracy. We have trade. We have all these things. We built welfare states. Everybody's you know happy. Except not everybody's happy. And. And, and suddenly, like this 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 interwar ideology reemerges. It didn't entirely go away, by the way. It was always there, but it was always underneath the surface and really buried, actually. Um, and my book basically stops in about 1945, 1947, something like that. Um, and that's for a reason we can talk about. But um, the movement. The, the fascist movement never went away. It just reemerged in, in a different form, and 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 because very few people alive have any memory of it, um, it, it was unfamiliar to us, and so it was unexpected that it could come back with such terror. I mean, the and for the purpose of my book is to uh, to explain the reemergence of this particular ideological. Um, Orientation, which I think more correctly is called right-wing Hegelianism, or right, actually more specifically, right-Hegelianism. And so, yeah, that's the purpose of the book is just just to flesh it out. I left the left out entirely and just to, it just revealed the the rightest anti-liberal uh, threat to to human rights and human dignity and, and the idea of progress itself. And So I think sure. it's really the only book that actually covers this topic in any detail. And the reason you've detected such fire and passion in the work is because I was in a period of discovery myself. I was like, oh my God, you know, this nonsense has been going on since about 1820. And I couldn't (laughs) wait to, like, explain it all, essentially.
2: Yeah, no, I love how you went through all the literature, and you even have a fairly extensive bibliography of some of the major players and thinkers, and some of the minor ones, too, but that that had an impact on Mussolini and Hitler.
0: Listen, you know, I'm a, I'm a I'm a happy guy, but but, but in and preparing this book I, I read probably two hundred or so of these ghastly treatises, you know, from you know Julius Caesar von evela to, you know, Carl Schmidt and um, uh, Carlisle and, and, and some of the American scientific racialist literature and um the rightist collectivism uh, progressivism of progressivism of, of, of California and Wisconsin. Uh, statism, and um, yeah, I just like yeah, the, the the Hegelians, you know, are are very strange bunch. They're they're not they're not normal people. I mean, they're not Manchesterites. They're not like successors to Adam Smith. And they hate liberty. and They hate liberalism. And they despise n- normal life, essentially, and they want to replace it with this kind of big historical drama, not unlike Marxism. It, it is a kind of a form of Marxism. I mean. I can explain it very, very quickly, and I think in a very short way, and, and if you, any of your readers are listening, they'll maybe not understand what I'm about to say, but but if they take it with them and, and research it later, they'll, they'll figure it out. Basically, what happened was in 1820, there was a revolt against liberalism that, that took place in the works of Hegel, and the followers of Hegel uh, went either left-wing or right-wing, depending on what they believed was the uh, uh, jurisdictional limits of their great historicist revolution. So, uh, if you thought the, uh, that uh, the the great uh, Hegelian moment was going to be global global and encompass the whole human race, you became a Marxist, if you believed that uh, the great historical sweep of history was it was was driving us towards the end of making the Prussian state and the Prussian church supreme, then you became a right Hegelian, and therefore eventually, after lots of iterations and she became a Nazi. So those those are our two problems essentially: it's the commies and the Nazis, uh, two uh, branches of Hegelianism that hate each other, but both reject uh, classical liberalism of the sort that our the founding fathers in the United States uh, embraced, and, and you know the classical liberalism of you know Montesquieu and Adam Smith and Thomas Jefferson and, and uh, the class essentially. So, so that continues to be the struggle today. The thing is that <coughs> in our lifetimes, in my lifetime, you know, you go to college and you're surrounded by this left egalitarian, and you're like, I'm sick of it. These people are horrible. I can't, you know, I can't stand them. They're just a menace to uh, the social order. And uh, but if 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 you just become a, a radical anti-leftist without understanding that there's another version of egalitarianism that you've never explored namely right hegelianism, then you can find yourself in trouble, you know, dabbling in racist racist ideology and nationalistic ideology and fascism generally. And I I think that's where we are right now. People don't see liberalism as the alternative to statism. They see see some other ideological force alive in the world that seeks to control the state. And that's the purpose of the book, is to just kind of talk about uh, very overtly and specifically, from a historical point of view and a theoretical point of view, this alt this, this right Hegelian paradigm that's now taking over Europe and the United States and right. its politics no. and its culture. Yeah,
2: I, I, that's very helpful. Thank you. I, I I think you're right. I think the the idea that the opposite of liberalism is this right Hegelianism is very scary. Rather than people moving towards liberty. And and I also thoroughly appreciate what you said about having to read all this, you know, dark and just horrific literature. At yeah. least by today's standards, that must have been incredibly depressing. And and one of it, Jeffrey, is the whole eugenics movement. This is this is a creepy, creepy thing. Um, you know, Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr., Supreme Court Justice, says three generations of yeah. imbeciles is enough. And you know, oh, you. Sure. you you write about the absence of any dissenting voices on this topic, and, and mm-hmm. the, the economics profession comes off really ugly in this. I know they had a major role, you know, in, in the eugenics movement,
0: but... Uh, oh, gosh, yes. I mean, huge, right? I mean, uh, the earliest publications of the American Economic Association were just, just astonishing, uh, eugenics propaganda or scientific racist uh, propaganda. I mean, the economists in America thought their first job before you could centrally plan the economy is that you had to centrally plan the, the demographics. And I get this. If you think about it, it's like you know the, the human repro- reproductive capacity is the ultimate anarchy. You know? All right. Um, uh, and and we don't allow this kind of anarchy, in our, uh, you know, as farmers and ranchers, right? We would never just allow any two animals to reproduce under any conditions. That would just, that would just be crazy, I mean, that would just be, that not something we would ever do. Um, and and so, so if you are of the mindset that society has to be centrally planned, and you forget about the use of wood and steel and and, um, and land and, and wheat. You first have to deal with the problem of people. They, they, they keep doing anarchist, anarchistic, chaotic things like having children randomly or, or hooking up with, with people randomly, and that that has to be stopped. So, so you know, it turns out by by the late 19th century, um, uh, you know, every socialist, whether right wing or left wing wanted to get, get, get hold of the, of the demographics of the nation, mainly because they thought that, you know, demographics was destiny. And you, ha- you had to move hard on this area and control it through immigration restrictions, and, but not just immigration, but, you know, it, okay. it, was, it was all about marriage licenses, and then it was about the uh, uh, permissioning people into the workplace through... Uh, uh, you know, various sticks and carrots uh, and, you know, minimum wages, which were originally designed to exclude a, a large large swath of the population from the workforce and maximum working hours restrictions and all these kinds of things. Passports were part of it. Almost every... And it was, it was an amazing thing to do this research, but almost all the core institutions of, of what we think as the total state of the early part of the 20th century were driven by... The eugenics concern, uh, which was overwhelmingly the scientific consensus on the on the part of the, every every economist, and I mean it was it was the, practically the public philosophy emanating from the Ivy League all the way down, and and, and our, our newspapers were replete with it. It's just amazing, and and hardly anybody knows this. And I think one of the reasons we don't know it is that, that it sounds strange that like. A uh, hundred years is too soon to start coming to, come to terms with the ghastliness of our own history. Actually, there are very few <laughs> books about this topic. I mean, isn't that <laughs> odd? It that is. We don't, like it... people just don't don't know this. I mean, I give a lot of talks on this, but people are just amazed. It's like, wait, you mean American public intellectuals are united on the desire to exterminate you know whole peoples? It's like, yeah. That really happened right here. Right here in the good old USA. That really did happen.
2: The, The believers. The believers in this reads like a who's who, right? George Bernard Shaw yeah. and all all of these oh, yeah. people. I mean, when you linked it to the minimum wage and even maximum hours for women is, is a way to control yeah. the reproductive and all of them marriage licenses and all the other policy institute, uh, you know, oh, yeah. uh, prescriptions that came from this. It's kind of amazing. Well, Jeffrey, this is just great. I knew this would flew by. The book is Right Wing Collectivism, The Other Threat to Liberty. It is a fantastic read folks especially oh, yeah. from a historical perspective i just thought you did such a great job it's just Thank a, you. And it was such
0: a a dreadful job to do and i'm, I'm <laughs> so happy to have, have in a weird way I, I'm, I'm glad to have moved on to write about technology and happy things now but <laughs> but, but still i <laughs> right but still we have to confront our dark past in order not to repeat it basically you know
2: to learn from it no it's it's a it's a it's a service to mankind and i thank you for doing it and folks we'd like to remind you if you'd like to get a hold of ed or myself you can send us an email to ask tsoe at and now we want to hear from our sponsor abacus next
4: the future of online tv is here Results CRM, the award-winning Abacus Next product, is a customer relationship management solution that will automate your business processes, streamline workflows, and deliver consistent results. Cloud-enabled to provide access to your users anytime, from anywhere. Grow your business in 2018 with the number one QuickBooks CRM. To learn more about Results CRM, visit ResultsCRM.com.
1: Well, Ron and I today have the honor of talking to Jeffrey Tucker. It's been a wide-ranging conversation and, and will continue to be. Um, Jeffrey, we've got a, a, a question here that, that came in from one of our, our listeners on this, uh, and I was just asking people what they might might talk to you about, and I think this is a really good one. Um, I, I am like you probably more. And, well, I'm not quite as far as you yet, but I think I'm getting there more and more every day. And that is a follow, uh, follower of anarcho-capitalism. And but one of the, the big keys that we we constantly hear about is what about the free rider problem? So what about things like the the national defense, right? Whereas if we don't provide for that on a not in a non voluntary way, i.e., taxes, that it somehow could end up leading to the destruction of the very thing that we hold dear, which is the 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 uh, ha- having the state uh, not interfere with us, right? Because if someone else were to invade us, that would be a problem. So, what what are your thoughts on that? What's what's the free rider problem solution?
0: Well, I, I tend to think of the government itself as the, as the biggest problematic invader. I mean, the main thief, the main kidnapper, you know, the main the main uh, threat to our liberties. So, the thing that that claims to protect us is actually the, the thing that's ruining our lives day to day. Actually. And, of course, if you're going to run that kind of racket, you know, steal a third of people's incomes and, and draft their kids into wars and start trouble all over the world, you have to have a good excuse. And, and something like the free rider problem is, is, I guess, as good as any. But the, the thing is that, you know, what you find, if you, if you just kind of look around your life, you'll notice that a lot of what uh, people say are, are things that liberty cannot do, actually liberty ends up doing if there's a problem in society there's people out there that are really anxious to make a profit uh, 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 to to fix it, even if it involves free riders and you know i'm I'm, I'm totally amused by this free rider problem by itself and I feel, I feel this way but but every day when I drive to work I, mean, I drive past countless numbers of beautiful lawns and flower beds and and I look at beautiful skyscrapers I'm inspired by um, the scenery all around me, and I'm, I'm experiencing these so-called positive externalities in every aspect of my life. I mean, just coming into, into the office and having strangers say hi to me, that brings me joy and happiness. I mean, these are positive externalities, and you'd think that a strict application of the free-rider problem is that nobody would ever give you any kind of aesthetic a personal benefit, unless they're being paid for it, that's just obviously not true. <laughs> Adam Smith talks about this in his Vals of Nations* that we we all have a desire for empathy, and and uh, and very few of us are, are willing to refuse uh, a favor to another person pending uh, payment. So, um, in the case of national defense, in particular, I just I don't see that as being a, a, a free rider issue at all. Um, nations can protect themselves better with a heavily armed uh, population, and and people who, in their capacity of their own own lives as individuals, you know protect protect their own and secure their own uh, person and property and those of their neighbors and friends. And that's just a better path to national security than building up a gigantic warfare state that that causes trouble all over the world. It, you look at the last you know twenty years, or so however long your historical memory goes back, uh, what the u s. military has done to the world has made us far less secure than we otherwise would be. When I mean, there never would have been an ISIS had there not been an invasion of Iraq, for example, or an invasion of Afghanistan or meddling and uh, the Syrian uh, political problems and so on. all, all these things that the u s military uh, has done is created. The problems that then the U.S. military claims that it wants to fix for us. So it's just this endless cycle. Uh, If I could push a button and get rid of the entire Leviathan military state, I absolutely would.
1: Yeah, interesting. Well, uh, switching gears, almost uh, 180 degrees here on you, one of the other things I know that you ha- are is as as an associate of the Acton Institute, and Father Sirico has been a guest on our program twice. Mm-hmm. And I uh, also noticed in a bio, tuck, tuck somewhere in a bio, is is uh, the notion that you converted to Catholicism. I'm, I'm Catholic mm-hmm. myself. And I want to mm-hmm. know, what what brought you to Catholicism, and is Francis making you rethink it? Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> These are the kinds of questions Catholics ask themselves, right? (laughs) Well, I tell you what—the the the biggest reason not to be not to be a Catholic is, is, um, how do I put it? That that if you're going to let your Catholicism be shaken by the uh, uh, the. Spokesman for the church, or the uh, functioning of the curial offices, or the bureaucracy of the Vatican, then you probably should become a Catholic. I mean, ultimately, Catholicism <laughs> is a matter of the heart. Uh, it's an indelible mark in the soul, and you have to either learn to practice it um, as um, as, a, as a matter of your personal passion or give it up entirely. It is not a religion that. Exalt people. It's a religion that exalts uh, affairs of the spirit uh, in the first instance. And I think, I don't know, you know, every time I tell the story of my conversion, which happened so many years ago, you know, when I was in my early twenties, uh, probably, um, the story is a little different. Uh, mainly because I'm always, you know, we, you know, things happen to us you know, and, and happen to us in our past, and we we have a different version of events each time. But I think, in my case, I really did want a face that was you know a, a kind of a more beautiful um, and aesthetically evocative story that I could carry around with me um, in, a, in a way that uh, that would uh, you know basically improve my outlook on life and and I, I think Catholicism did that for me uh at, at you know, at that at that moment in my life and I and it's my story, it's my my faith, it's it's what I live with. Like I can say it's an indelible mark and I knew when I converted that I would that my life would, you know, completely change and I would never be anything but Catholic. It was just it's just what happens to you. You just know it. And and even if you're not people ask me all the time, Do you consider yourself a good Catholic? Huh, are you kidding? Is there any such thing? I'm not even sure there is <laughs> 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 we're all terrible Catholics. I mean, that's just the way it is. That's sort of baked into the Catholic uh, way of thinking, you know. We're, we're terrible at uh, practicing our faith. Of course, all of us are. And But we're not looking for perfection, you know. We're, we're looking for—what are we looking for? We're looking for, for peace, uh, salvation, uh, understanding, um, some way to conceptualize the purpose of our existence, um, to, to understand the the waves of of of, of, of things that affect our lives and and, and and a pattern that's that's somewhat coherent and Catholicism provides all those things for us and I can't I can't shake it you know people come up to me all the time I have a ton of friends who are just like almost everybody these days seems like they're just massive skeptics they don't believe anything you know and um, that's okay it's okay but for me. Um, I have a I have a conception of what what eternity looks like and what time looks like and the relationship between the two and and the connection between those two that, that great layer of history in which in which the transcendent and the mere mortal touch through the liturgy of the church through uh, through grace through accidental beauties you bump into through the imagination all these things. And Catholicism helps me understand that and explain it, and brings me peace and order to my mind and my heart. So
1: that's that's how I account for it. That's uh, beautifully well said. I'm a cradle Catholic, but that is was was beautifully well said. So thank you. Um, and and now now to a su- to a, a subject that I alluded to in the introduction that you kind of chuckled at, uh, in, which is your amateur acting career. So there's a there's a little known piece written by Murray Rothbard. You can find it on the web. We'll put a link up to it called Mozart was a red written by Murray Rothbard. Uh and so you play a character who I believe is modeled on Nathaniel Brandon. So tell 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 us a little bit about that. We got about 2 minutes left in this segment. Sure.
0: Mur- Murray was turning 60 and that play had never been staged before. It was just in his private papers and uh, And I was tapped to uh, perform uh, that part at at uh, at a 60th birthday party in front of Murray, who was my friend. But I was very I was very young. I must say I did a pretty good job. I can't believe how much that play I memorized so quickly because we only had a couple hours to rehearse before we presented it and. And I played Nathaniel Brandon, even though I didn't really understand him. I, I kind of figured out who he was based on the text that we played. We had a great time. Murray was absolutely delighted. I watched that from time to time. I think I did a good job. I was a little weird, but you know, I think I did a good job. Murray loved Rand. He loved her desperately, and she had a profound influence on his life. But he didn't like the little culty aspects of of the Rand inner circle in her apartment. So. He wrote the play as a kind of a send-up of of the people that surrounded Rand, uh, who he found to be ridiculous and hilarious, and and it was uh, he actually had a very bitter parting with Rand, what he called the Rand cult, and and the result was was, was that play. Which, by the way, I, I know so many objectivists, and they all love that play. They think it's really very funny and hilarious. So that was, <laughs> it was a real honor. It was a real honor to play that part for for Murray. And like I say, he laughed so hard that night. He just absolutely loved it. And it's all over the internet, even to this day. By the way, you know, when when a friend of mine found the tape, he said, I'm going to put this on YouTube. And I said, please don't. Please don't. Oh, please don't. Oh, it's just, please don't. That's just terrible. It's just humiliating. I can't. I can't do it. He put it up anyway.
1: And (laughs) now I'm glad. Now I'm glad. I'm glad. I'm glad it's out there. Well, I- I'm glad, to. I think I find it hysterically funny, and I-, I did not realize that you only had a couple hours to rehearse it. That ma- makes it even better. So I think you guys did a great job with it. So we'll put a link up <laughs> on, on our site, so maybe you'll get a couple, couple hundred more views. But uh, right now, against our last break, want to remind you, you can contact Ron or me. The email address is asktsoe at verisage.com. The website, of course, is The Soul of Enterprise. And right now, a word from our sponsor and my employer, Sage.
5: Follow us on Twitter at Voice America TRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's Voice America TRN.
3: Wherever your business is headed, Sage has the cloud solution you need to enable mobile accounting and simplify financial management. Discover how moving your financial data and accounting processes to the cloud. Can transform your business. Cloud accounting software from Sage can help you make better decisions, drive faster responses, and gain greater control. That's cloud accounting for the journey. For more information, visit sage.com forward slash US forward slash SOE. There is no blueprint for running the perfect firm. No way to know the challenges you'll face. But your journey does not have to be an odyssey. Experience what it is like for every part of your firm to be connected. Experience a practice management tool where everything is just a click away. Experience Office Tools. To learn more, visit office tools.com.
4: Have you ever read a book that changed your life?
2: Welcome back, everybody. We're here with Jeffrey Tucker, an economics writer of the Austrian School, which, of course, we're big supporters of, and the chief liberty officer of Liberty.me. Jeffrey, one topic you take on in your book a little bit is you talk about some rich people, people like Donald Trump and Ross Perot, and you could probably throw Soros in there and a whole bunch of others. And, you know, that old quip, the problem with socialism is socialism, but the problem with capitalism is capitalists. Why do you think it is that so many people that are rich don't understand just economics? Like Trump and trade, for instance. He, he gets all worried about the trade deficit and thinks it's a zero-sum game and, oh, they're beating us. But governments don't trade. People do it. Why do you think that is?
0: Uh, because once you get rich, you congratulate yourself and you think it's all due to your own efforts and that, that somehow the gods have favored you. Um, actually, it's worse than the gods have favored you. It's that your intelligence has is uh, the key to, to why you're rich and everybody else is uh, kind of lame. And I've never known anybody, or I've known very few people who had a tremendous amount of money who didn't basically go crazy as a result. And they, they began to trust their intelligence and, and their personal awesomeness over the decentralized decision-making of normal social life. So right. they, they think they know better. And, uh, and and you know, unfortunately, we've built these gigantic states all around us. And these states are crying out for somebody to come control them. Like, oh, look, I've got a huge machinery, and we're worth tr- trillions of dollars, and we've got, you know, uh, nuclear weapons, and everybody loves, loves me, so why don't you come control me? And so the rich of the world are like, oh, okay, I'm pretty good at that kind of stuff. So... Um, you know, I built a great company, therefore I'll build a great nation. It just one thing flows to the next. Um, Capitalism is the rarest belief structure you can find, or as, as I prefer to call it, liberalism, which is just a conviction that society should be left alone to organically develop on its own, and people should be permitted to work out their own problems for themselves without central planning, without authority. That is that is a, a, a an unusual position in the sweep of history and it's very difficult to sustain but there's always somebody out there who thinks they know better than you and and certainly the rich are are are, are the people who are most prone to to that uh, belief structure which 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 is funny if you think about it because um, so much of statism as it's developed in the post-war period has been about The poor, you know. Oh, we have to help the poor. It's like you know, states are always and everywhere controlled by the rich. That's always been true. And typically, the rich don't do that much for the poor because they don't understand them. Um, They have sort of a patronizing, condescending attitude towards them. They they don't. uh, A lot of times, they want to exterminate them. The the, the very, very wealthy are the worst people uh, at at taking care of the poor. So it's, it's it's unusual to find somebody of, of, of tremendous means who has, can combine that with humility and also understanding. I'm not saying it's impossible, but it's just rare.
2: Yeah, no, I think you're right. Uh, obviously, free markets are the best thing for the poor. That's the only thing that we know that lifts people out of poverty. And along those lines, I just wanted to get your take. What is your take on the universal basic income?
0: Oh, I think it's a terrible idea, and I'm very wanted to see so many people who call themselves even libertarians supporting it because actually I think universal basic income would be catastrophic for society because it eliminates basically it's, well, it's unaffordable. There's, there's that, but you know, as soon as you say that, uh, nobody really cares because like, oh, whatever, we're a rich society. We can afford anything. It bankrupt, uh, the country for sure. But aside from that, um, it would eliminate entry level jobs. And entry level jobs are the great thing that happens to you in, in life, essentially. I mean, like, I think back to my own life, and almost everybody does, and you guys are listening now or or I think you can think about this too, but, um, my, my formative experiences in life had nothing to do with school. They were all about, um, commercial experiences I had, you know, when I was 12, digging water wells, when I was 13, you know, doing roofing, when I was 14, when I was tuning and moving organ, you know, moving pianos and tuning organs, when I was 15, I was a best boy, you know, I was, when I was 16, working in a department maintenance store and then became, you know, uh, a fry cook and, you know, the mastering of the catering kitchen and, you know, all, all these wonderful experiences and then eventually became, you know, uh, the manager of a men's store by the time I was 17 or 18, you know, oh, oh, also during which time I was working late, playing in a jazz band and clubs. I mean, these were the great, great experiences of my life. And I did it because I was scrambling for money. And if somebody had come along to me at any point and said, you know, you need to stop all this crazy running around that you do and just take this check, which allows you to pay your rent and your bills and, and uh, put gas in your car and just focus on your studies, I might have taken that, and I would have been massively impoverished as, as a result. That, I think, is the worst aspect of this idea of a universal basic income. It, it disincentivizes us uh, from from uh, from living a full life and from doing cool things and from struggling. And there's there's a point to the struggle. There's a reason we should go through these struggles. They, they train us and build our character and, and make us... Better people, and you look back at it, and you're you're glad you did all these things. I mean, do you remember your first job? I mean, it's, they're they're prescient experiences in life.
2: Absolutely, no, I I totally agree with you that it separates work from reward, but it, it's just also soul crushing on a spiritual level, yeah. just to get yeah. a handout. Like it, even Charles Murray, who I really respect, and you know his uh, proposal, which I think is the one of the best ideas, but it it, it just it's still concerns me. <laughs>
0: I, oh, me too. And, and, and you know, a lot of these guys, like I think Charles Murray says this, it's like, well, let's replace the entire existing welfare state with a universal basic basic income. You know, yes. that will never happen. It'll never happen. Yep. It'll never happen. Yeah. There's a reason why the welfare state exists as it is and mainly because it rewards special interests. I mean, you only have to look at something like food stamps. You know, that is that's a program administered by the Department of Agriculture. The purpose is to subsidize um, big agriculture is not to help the poor. And that's the reason the program exists. Everything else you hear is just all nonsense. So, you, you know, there's no button to push anywhere to abolish that program and replace it with ca- cash outlays. I mean, a, a big agriculture would scream. Don't you understand? The purpose isn't to help the poor. The, the purpose is to help the rich. That's, that's the purpose of the welfare state. That's why it exists, to help the rich and disempower the poor. And that's gets back to my, my book again, but I discuss a lot of this in my book, Right on Collectivism, about the origin of the welfare state, was had nothing to do with the rights of the poor. It's always about exclusion, segregation, uh, uh, taming the aspirations for universal human dignity and that sort of thing. The welfare state was the enemy of the poor And I have no doubt that the universal basic income, if we ever uh, implemented something like that, would very quickly become the biggest enemy of the poor that there is.
2: Right. Uh, Jeffrey, we just got about a minute minute or so left, but I just want to ask you, and I think I know the answer, but with respect to the future of liberty, are you optimistic or are you pessimistic?
0: Oh, I mean, enormously, guys. We need to get through the phase of right Hegelianism, and I think I think once we finish this, and hopefully we don't return to left Hegelianism. And like, all I'm really asking the people to do is look around their lives, find out the beautiful thing, the thing you love the most, and you'll discover its source is not authority, it's not power, it's it's love and it's liberty. That's that's what makes our lives grand and beautiful and glorious. We need more of that. And then we can have more prosperity, peace, and uh, human emancipation from all the things we don't like. That's my view.
2: Amen. Jeffrey Tucker, thank you so much for appearing on the Soul of Enterprise. This has just been wonderful. Keep up the great work out there. You do great, great stuff, and we're big fans. So thank you very much. Ed, what do we have on store? You bet. Ed, what's on store for next week? (laughs) Did we lose Ed? Uh, Well, folks, next week is Free Writer Friday. So we'll be doing that next week for the month of July. And we'll see you in 167 hours. This has been the Soul of Enterprise, business and the knowledge economy, sponsored by Sage, energizing business builders around the world through the imagination of our people and the power of technology. Join us next week, folks, on Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific time, where we'll be doing Free Rider Friday for the month of July. For more information and our full interview with uh, Jeffrey Tucker today, check out thesoulofenterprise.com and you can also send Ed or myself an email to asktsoe at Thanks for listening, folks. Have a great weekend.